0: If you've got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 24, and we're going to finish this chapter this morning, chapter 24, and we're in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. The title for this morning's sermon is Procrastination Could Cost You Your Life. Procrastination Could Cost You Your Life. We're in Acts 24, 22 through 27. Let's look at the text, and then we'll dive into our time together this morning. It says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attempting or attending to his needs." After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. God, we're asking today that you would speak to us clearly through your word, the scripture. We're thankful that we could gather together to hear the word read and preached and proclaimed to us. Pray that you would help us to learn what you want us to learn from this text as Paul continues to give his defense there before Felix and Caesarea, that we would just examine uh, the way Paul handled this opportunity and how he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and help us also to see Felix and how in this situation he procrastinated and how that can be an ultimate sin that would even cost us our own lives, God. Sober us this morning. Allow us to learn what you want us to learn from this time together, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, procrastination has proven to be very costly, especially during a time of war. Not making the right decision at the right time could cost many people their lives. One such example would be giving in to Hitler instead of confronting him in the early years of his regime as he came into power slowly but surely and took over Germany and even much of Europe with his evil grip. The policy of appeasing Hitler is often characterized as the delay that gave the Fuhrer greater time to spread his poison of Nazi theology and prepare for his attempt at world domination. Domination, I should say. Winston Churchill is best known for capturing the sentiment, saying three years prior to Germany's invasion of Poland, here's what Churchill said, quote, The era of procrastination, of half measures, of soothing and baffling expedients, of delays, is coming to a close. In its place, we are entering a period of consequences." In other words, procrastinating or stopping Hitler, uh, led, uh, or not stopping Hitler, is what led to a Second World War. And if Hitler had been dealt with head-on earlier in the 20th century, many lives could have been saved. Those who are familiar with the American Civil War may be aware that it could have ended potentially much sooner had it not been for the procrastination of General George B. McClellan, Beloved by his men and a stickler for training, you might think that it would be him that we would remember over Ulysses S. Grant, former Union general and later the 18th president. But Lincoln eventually made Grant the Northern Army's leader for a single and rather important reason. Grant was willing to engage with the enemy. McClellan, Despite an overwhelming number of troops, and arsenal appeared always to be somewhat allergic to battle, and McClellan's strategy seemed to always be waiting for just the right moment when the perfect combination of geography and troop force and weather and adequate supplies would be there, and Civil War historians will forever regard McClellan as the prince in waiting. Unfortunately, there is no cigar for the prince of procrastination. Going back a little further into the past, an incident from the American Revolution illustrates the same thing of such a tragedy that can result due to procrastination. It it is reported that Colonel Johann Gottlob Rawl, the commander of the British troops in Trenton, New Jersey, was playing cards when a courier brought an urgent message stating that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware River. Colonel Rawl uh, put the letter in his pocket and didn't bother to read it until the game was finished. This short delay, however, proved to be his doom as Colonel Rawl somehow realized the seriousness of the situation. He hurriedly tried to rally his men to meet the coming attack, but his procrastination was his undoing. He and many of his men were killed and the rest of the regiment was captured. And the letter of warning the upcoming attack was found unopened in Colonel Rawls' pocket after his death. British ambassador Nobert Quell said only a few minutes delay cost him his life and his honor and the liberty of his soldiers. Earth's history is strewn with wrecks of half-finished plans and unexpected resolutions. Tomorrow is the excuse of the lazy and the refuge of the incompetent. So we see these different illustrations about if you pause and you procrastinate at a time of battle, it could cost you your life. And whether it be on a grand scale or on a personal scale, procrastination has great consequences. And whether it be on the world stage or in the privacy of your daily schedule, procrastination must be dealt with. Whether procrastinating puts millions of lives in jeopardy or just your own, waiting for just the right moment or until you have had enough energy or enough interest to deal with something could cost you more than you ever imagined. Whether it be at a time of war or a time of peace, procrastination could be deadly let me define this word procrastination for you. It's real simple, you know what it is. It's the act of postponing an action, putting off or delaying or deferring something until a later time. And I believe that procrastination could be considered as a sin when it, it, it deals with spiritual obedience. As you know, James 4.17 says, for whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, For him, it is a sin, right? So when we procrastinate biblical obedience to God, that's when it is a sin. Now, listen to this clever little poem on procrastination by Gloria Pitzer. She says this, Procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, some things you put off, and it's not a sin, like cutting the grass, vacuuming the house, right? There's certain things you can put off. It's not necessarily a sin, but we're talking this morning about spiritual truth. We're talking about conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God's word bearing down on your life, and when you put that off, that's a sin. Felix, the, the Roman governor of Judea, had the privilege of spending much time with the Apostle Paul. But he procrastinated making some sort of decision for for not only for Paul, but for his own life, how he would respond to Paul's teaching. He procrastinated. He chose not to repent, not to believe. And we could say this certainly cost him eternal life. This morning, I'm going to give you three headings for our text. We're going to look at the problem, verses 22 to 23. We'll see the proclamation, verses 24 and 25, and then we'll see the procrastination, verses 26 and 27. So let's start with number one, the problem, verses 22 to 23. And your first blank, if you are taking notes here, says, Felix put Paul off. He put Paul off. Look at verse 22 again. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Remember from last week, we saw how Paul was accused of many things, and we boiled it down into three specific accusations made against Paul. He was accused of being a world-renowned troublemaker, and he was also accused of being a leader of a dangerous anti-Roman cult, and then third, he was accused of trying to desecrate the Jewish temple. And Paul easily refuted all three accusations, not only because they were not true, it's because there was no evidence to present the contrary. They had no proof whatsoever. And so we finished last week looking at verses, uh, verse 21, where Paul writes this, or it's, it's written here, other than this one thing. So he's saying, hey, I'll tell you why I was really arrested. It's not for those things I was accused of, other than this one thing that I cried out. While standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And so Paul was saying here, Do you know why I'm on trial? It is for this one thing. Do you know why I was arrested? It's really for this one thing. Do you know why I'm here? It's really for this one thing. It's not because of stirring up controversy, and it's not because of the riots, and it's not because of the temple accusation. Do you know why I'm here today? It's because I'm on trial for believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I believe in the resurrection and because I believe in the resurrection that changes everything about my faith and about my life and it's that very message of the resurrection that was trying to be squashed by the Jews. And my friends, the same is true of us today. The world does not hate you because of your Christian t-shirts and it doesn't hate you because of your Christian movies and it doesn't hate us because of our Christian music and that some Christians like to sing kumbaya. We're going to do it at camp, all right? Next month, we're doing it at camp. But you know what? People don't hate us for that. They hate us because we preach the gospel. They don't just hate us because we don't get drunk, and we don't curse, and we don't party like it's 1999. They hate us because we preach Christ. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, and 19, if, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so what a great opportunity we have to stand with Christ. What a great opportunity we have to be a witness for Christ. And what a great opportunity for us to represent Christ. And that's what's happening with Paul in this accusations that are made against him throughout the chapter. And now in verse 22... We're reading about how Paul had or excuse me Felix verse 22 Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way Felix knew enough about Christianity to know that it didn't really pose true political threats against Rome and he also knew that the Sanhedrin had not adequately found Paul guilty of any specific crime and Felix he may have been informed somewhat about the way from his Jewish wife Drusilla I mean, after all, it was her family that had been involved with the way on several occasions, the the way being a reference to true Christianity. It was Drusilla's great grandfather who tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem in Matthew 2. It was Drusilla's great uncle who killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus in Luke 23, 6 to 12. And in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, tells of how it was Drusilla's father who had killed the apostle James. And so she was somewhat familiar with the way. And even in all of these events, though, there's no proof of Christians being political revolutionaries. And so since the charges against Paul were baseless, the only other verdict possible under Roman law would be that Paul would be deemed to be innocent. And yet such a verdict would infuriate the Jewish leaders and possibly lead to further unrest, and Felix could not afford to allow that to happen. So Felix invoked the Roman principle known as amplius, which is the formal delay or reservation of a final judgment. Paul was not convicted in front of Felix, but Felix delayed a final decision and ordered that Paul be kept in prison until further examination by Lysias the Tribune. Now that is a little interesting because Lysias had already given Felix a detailed written report of what had happened and how he had not committed any crime, but rather had offended Jewish law in Acts 23-29. Furthermore, there is no evidence that Felix ever did actually summon Lysias to Caesarea. And so Felix may have simply been using that as an excuse for stalling an excuse to put them off to not yet render a true firm verdict. And so he puts them off. And then in verse 23, your next blank says, Felix put Paul in custody. So he puts off the accusers and he puts Paul in custody. Verse 23, he then gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so at this point, Felix gives orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and by so doing Felix hoped to strive for some type of neutral ground. And since Paul was still uncondemned he was allowed some amount of freedom as a prisoner under the guardianship of Rome. Later, another centurion gave Paul similar freedom in Sidon in Acts 27 verse 3. Felix was trapped between doing the right thing and being a popular leader with the Jews, which would only make him look better to Rome. Well, now that we've been reminded of what the problem is that Paul's in the middle of, let's take a look at what he does. And that's our second heading this morning, the proclamation, the proclamation. Notice it says at the first part of verse 24, we read, it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And so we we see that at this point, Felix gave some orders for, for Paul to go to custody, and then it says, after some days, the beginning again of verse 24, does not specify the exact length of time. Other occurrences of this phrase, some days, in the book of Acts, does appear to designate the length of time to be shorter than one month. And so Felix apparently had taken a trip, perhaps to wherever his wife, Drusilla, had been staying, and now he had returned to Caesarea with his wife. And Felix would send, with, send for Paul, as verse 24 says, and he would talk with him about his faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul would, would, would talk about Christ. I mean, it was Paul who wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so we see this is what's happening in verse 24. Paul's just staying consistent to discuss and to talk about his faith, the last phrase of 24, his faith in Christ Jesus. I believe that Paul was an expert in giving his testimony, preaching the gospel over and over again, and nothing would hold him back. Paul wasn't interested in talking about peripheral issues. He wasn't interested in getting into side debates. He was interested in preaching Christ and him crucified. That's part of why we love Charles Haddon Spurgeon. No matter what sermon you've ever read or devotion you've ever read about Spurgeon, somewhere, rather quickly, in what you read that he's preached and written on, he preaches Christ. Spurgeon said this, In order to preach the gospel fully, there must be a very clear description of the person of Christ. Therefore, we preach Christ as God. Spurgeon goes on to say that we must very clearly preach Christ as the Messiah, and we must then preach the work of Christ. Isn't that the truth? That's what we're all about. Whether you're a preacher or just a witness for Christ, we're to be talking about Jesus all the time. And it's especially Christ and him crucified whom we are to preach. His wounds and his bruises remind us and, and, and remind us that he's been pierced for our transgressions and that he's been crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We've we got to be preaching Calvary. We've got to be preaching how Jesus opened up the kingdom of heaven to all who would repent and believe in him. And when Felix listened to Paul, this is what Paul was doing. He's preaching Christ, nothing else, nothing less. And this is what Paul refers to when he says in Jude, verse 3, that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's going to preach Christ and he's going to continue to preach all that that means. And that's what we see here in verse 25, your next blank. What we're really seeing is that Paul's preaching Christ c- considered these three things. And in addition to Christ and him crucified, it is three things in verse 25 that, that he emphasizes. The first one, A, there in your blank, is the word righteousness. The word righteousness. Again, and as he reasoned about righteousness. And so let's take a minute and talk about this righteousness. Righteousness is, of course, having a right standing before God. Righteousness is acknowledging that he is the one who sets the standard. He, he sets the truth. It is an absolute truth, an absolute standard, and God is perfectly righteous in all that he does. And sometimes people get confused about the word righteousness and church because in the Bible it can be seen to be used in at least three different ways. Righteousness could be referring to personal righteousness, positional righteousness, or practical righteousness. So let's look at those three that are there in your outline. Number one, personal righteousness. I'm defining personal righteousness there in your outline as the righteousness that you have on your own apart from God. This would not be a good thing. This is referenced in Isaiah chapter 64, verse six, where it says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteousness, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So in that context, at least, Isaiah is saying, your best works are like filthy rags. And even though they might be righteous to you, because you're keeping some type of standard, if that's all that you're doing in and of yourself as just on your own person, what you have to offer is nothing but filthy rags. That would be personal righteousness, and I'm talking about that apart from Christ, just trying to be holy on your own. A second type of righteousness we see in the Bible would be positional righteousness. Number two there, positional righteousness. And I'm defining positional righteousness as those of us who are in Christ because of the faith that he's granted to us that we're able to believe in the gospel. And as we believe by faith in what he has done, the scriptures teach us that we are then made positionally righteous. This is what is discussed in in Romans chapter four, verse three. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what did he do? He believed and now he's considered righteous, that you're made righteous by faith, by believing in God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? It's by faith, it's by believing in him, it's by coming to Christ and understanding who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And so there's personal righteousness Which I'm classifying as sinful pride. There is, you know, because it's our own effort apart from God, our best works are but filthy rags. There's positional righteousness, where God makes you righteous before Him when He imputes Christ's righteousness to your account by faith. And then there's what I call, number three, practical righteousness. I'm defining practical righteousness as those good works that you do as a Christian. By the Spirit's power that please the Lord. So we are called to walk righteously. We are called to do righteous works. I'm talking about Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." When verse nine, verse 9 says, part of the fruit of light is walking in that which is right, the same base word for the word righteousness. Or, or maybe another passage would be Philippians one ten and 11, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this kind of practical righteousness is a type of fruit. It describes our deeds when they're done as unto the Lord, as an act of obedience. It doesn't save you because your best works are but filthy rags. But when you believe you're made righteous, that's that's positional righteousness, and then you live a righteous life, that's practical righteousness, that you're walking in obedience to God's word, then this this is the righteousness of God given to us, and it's the righteousness of God that we walk in with his strength and his power as we are, are called to walk in obedience to him. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you righteous? Do you ever find yourself trying to approach God based on your own righteous works? Do you find yourself being clothed in the righteousness of Christ through salvation? Does, does your life have evidence of the fruit of the spirit in righteous behavior? And the truth is, again, that we have no righteousness apart from Christ. You can perform no righteous deeds apart from Christ. You don't have a righteous bone in your body. You don't have a righteous thought in your head. You don't have a righteous motive in your heart. But Christ is our standard, and Christ is our Savior. And Christ it sends mercy to broken sinners, and he th- Fills us with his righteousness. And when he fills us with his righteousness, he empowers us and he abides in us where we can live righteously for his name's sake. This is what Paul's talking about to Felix. He's like, hey, Felix, there's a standard. His name is Jesus Christ, who's been raised from the dead, and he's called you to live a righteous life. This is what God expects and calls of all those who would repent. And so Paul begins to just talk about this. I I think that it's when it says he talked about righteousness, that he reasoned. So he took some time to explain similar things to what we're looking at this morning because he talks to him about righteousness. That's the first part of his little mini personal sermon to Felix. And then after talking about righteousness, Paul also talked to Felix, number two, or B in your outline, he talks to him about self-control, self-control. So he reasoned about righteousness and self-control control. This is man's required response to live in accordance with the Word of God. And self-control, as you know, is also a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. Now, it's impossible to have self-control unless you're truly born again, filled with the Spirit, and walking in step with the Spirit. But with those things in mind, if you're truly born again, and you're truly filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, then God gives you self-control. You know, we we like to be in control, right? In today's technological world, we like to control everything. We have timers for everything. We have remote controls for everything. We have smart houses. and We have smart phones. You could do anything on your phone, literally. You could turn on the oven. You could turn on the, the jacuzzi close the garage door, turn on your lights, you can just sit there on your phone and all day long like, watch this, yeah, watch this, watch this, because we like that control, right? Man thinks that he can be in control of everything except himself, because man has no control whatsoever on his own, apart from God, on his own. He can't control himself. I mean, I've talked with people, as you have, who struggle with different sins, as we all struggle, but I've talked with people who say, I don't have any control over my addiction, to drugs, or to alcohol, or to immorality. I've talked to people who say, I have no control over my anger, or my fear, or my feelings. I've talked to people who would say they have no control over their desires, or over their dreams, or over the direction life is taking them. And I get that, like part of it is like we can't control everything around us, but part of it when it comes to sin is the argument being made, well I can't help it, I can't help it. Well, can we help it or can we not help it? I mean, it startles me when somebody says, I can't help it because they're denying this truth of scripture that says, look, not only is there a righteous standard that God's called us to, given to us in his word, but he gives us the self-control to live and according to this standard. It's got to be provided by God, right? We don't have it in ourselves. The self-control, though, that God provides through his spirit is stronger than any sin, it's tougher than any temptation. It's greater than any sinful habit. And the self-control that God gives breaks every train chain. And it frees every captive. And it liberates every prisoner. And the self-control that God gives is greater than the flesh. And it's greater than the world. And it's greater than the devil. And if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. Because not only does God save you, but he transforms you from the inside out that you now have power over sin to walk in obedience to God's standard. Not perfectly all the time, as we know, we still fail, we still stumble, but we're no longer enslaved to our sin. This is what Romans 6 is all about. Romans 6 verses 11 through 14 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. We're reminded, we've been set free. We can walk in victory, we can walk in obedience. And so as Christians, we are not called to control our fleshly desires by our own strength, but by Christ in us, by our faith in Christ and by walking in the spirit. And so we need to exercise self-control over every temptation. And with God's help, we can exercise self-control. Let me just give you three things. I just want to remind you, this is just for free, okay? Three things I think we need to exercise self-control over. Number one, self-control and materialism. Self-control and materialism. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We also read in Luke sixteen fourteen that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Now, most of us in here, if I were to ask you the question, "Do you love money?" you're going to tell me a hundred times out of a hundred, "What? No." Because you're a good Christian. I'm going to say, do you love money? You're like, no, I hate money. (laughs) And yet you know and I know that as human beings, we struggle with this idea of materialism. And that uh, materialism is something that where the desire for things begins to infiltrate your heart and that's where it can become sinful. So let me help you. I'm going to give you three signs that money may be the master in your life. You ready? Number 1. Told this is all for free, okay? This is all free. <laughs> lovers of money focus on things more than people. Lovers of money focus on things more than people. Instead of valuing relationships, lovers of money value purchasing nice things like fine clothing, dining at posh restaurants or going on luxurious vacations and pur- purchasing whatever makes them happy. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all those things are sinful. It's okay to go on vacation and have nice clothes. I'm just saying when we began to focus on those things more than we focus on people, we are valuing those things more than we're valuing how we can love God and serve others. And so there's just a little check in our spirit to make sure that we're not falling into this category because lovers of money focus on things more than they focus on people. Here's a second sign where money might be taking a hold in your life. Number two, B, lovers of money place their confidence in what they possess. God's word reminds us to place our confidence in God, who provides our needs. We are not to place our hope in the uncertainty of jobs, retirement plans, or property. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Don't put your security in riches. Take what God's given you and be generous and share with others. Where is your confidence? Do you tell me or would you say to yourself that once you've paid off the mortgage or once you've gotten that promotion or once you've built up that 401k to a certain level that now you feel secure? Or do you trust God more than wealth to give you a good foundation for the future? Sorry about that. We're getting that fixed. There's something wrong with it. And it just acts up when I start really bearing into your soul. That's when it acts up. So every time you hear that, it's just like God, consciousness, sermons all coming together for you. So, all right. So are you trusting in money for your security or are you trusting in God? Third sign that money may be a master in your life. C, lovers of money never have enough. Lovers of money never have enough. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's like a curse. You love it, you won't be satisfied with it. You love sports, it'll never satisfy you. You love money, it'll never satisfy you. What you love will never satisfy unless it's Jesus. If you love Jesus, you will be satisfied. But if you love something else, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth as his income. This also is, what do you think it is, Ecclesiastes? Vanity. Vanity. This is vanity. So lovers of money, they never have enough. Are you seeking the comfort and leisure that comes with money? Are you waiting until you have enough before you can be satisfied? Or are you content with what God has given to you? 1 Timothy 6:6 6, 6 says, "But godliness with contentment is great gain." Doesn't say money. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Years ago, I was sharing that with one of my kids, and he told me he thought it should say godliness with candy would be great gain. I say, "No, it doesn't work that way. It's godliness. It's being content." With what God has for you, that's where the great gain is. And so with God's help, we can exercise self-control over the love of money. Another common area we need to learn, I'm still in the free part of the sermon. Number two, self-control and food. Self-control and food. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. My aim with sharing this thought about self-control and food is not to shame you into you somehow injecting into your diet more kale chips and chia seeds, all right? But I, I just want you to understand that gluttony is a sin and that for many of us, whether you struggle with weight or not, there's comfort foods out there that we tend to run to that we sometimes can, can be idolatrous in our desire for certain food or an amount of food, or that we have to have a food at a certain time in a certain place. I'm just saying, check your own heart. Is it more about your love for Christ? Is it more about you having what you have to have? And I'm just saying we need to filter every desire right through the scriptures and to exercise every desire to the glory of God. This means we need to have self-control when it comes to what we eat and how much we eat. And don't let your desire for food control you. Don't be dominated by it. But follow 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So I'm just encouraging you. We, we can have self-control over our love for money. We can have self-control over our love for food. A third common area that we need to have self-control over, number three, self-control and sexual immorality. Self-control and sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. As common as sexual immorality is in our culture And even as Christians, as we still battle this ongoing temptation, I just want to remind you this morning, you don't have to give in. God's given a righteous standard to be pure and to pursue purity. And we know this can be a struggle for all of us at different seasons of our life, at different times, but I'm just here to remind you this morning, God has given you in Christ the power to exercise self-control over your own body, and over your own desire. And don't blame the sin of sexual immorality on the world. I'm talking about what's going on inside of your own heart. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. According to this passage, sinful lust begins within an evil desire. And being tempted by evil is not the sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways, even as we are, yet was without sin. The sin begins when the evil desire drags us away from where our hearts need to be. And when an evil desire introduces itself, we have a choice. We can reject it as Jesus did and refocus on the path that God has set before us. Or we can entertain the temptation where it becomes sin. As someone once said, we cannot stop the birds from flying overhead, but we don't have to let them make a nest in our hair. When temptation beckons, we need to remember that we are not helpless. We can choose to give in, or we can choose to resist. And with God's help, we can exercise self-control over sexual immorality. Now, again, when Paul's talking about self-control, I don't know that he named these three sins specifically, but I do think that he was administering truth to Felix in certain areas to say, hey, this is an area where you've fallen short. We do know that he did seduce Drusilla to be his wife, and there was an immoral relationship in that particular department of Felix's life. And no doubt, he probably struggled with other things as well, as we all do, but Paul is continuing to talk about, hey, there's a righteous standard, there's, there's self-control that only God gives through the gospel, and then, number three, third part of his sermon here, is there's judgment to come, judgment to come. So he, he talks to him about, he reasons with him about self-control, about, about, I mean, about righteousness, about self-control, and the coming judgment. Perhaps Paul told Felix and Drusilla what he had told the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17:31, where God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word fixed a day, or what Paul's talking about here, there is a certain time, there's, there's judgment to come. In that text, that familiar text from Acts 17, 31, when it says God fixed a day, it's like it's on God's calendar. It's on his divine calendar. Just like you have important dates on your own calendar. Like, today I have a dentist appointment. Or a graduation to attend, or a wedding to go to, or today I have an important bill to pay, or a project that's due, or it's the first day of summer break. These things are all on our calendars. And on God's calendar, there's a day where He flips the divine calendar in heaven and says, This is the day. This is the day where I will judge the world in righteousness. That day's coming. We keep Kicking it down the road as if like, well, it's not here yet. I guess I got some more time before this judgment day comes. And yet, you know, as a Christian, no man knows the day or the hour when that day comes. But the Bible tells us it is coming and all sin will be judged. Psalm 98 verse nine says, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, let let us make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so at this part of the discussion, I believe Felix became frightened. He could have even been trembling. He, He was probably terrified because he knew he had sin in his life. I mean, Paul's just going for it. There's righteousness, there's self-control, and there's judgment coming. So what did Felix do at this very moment when he's hearing the message of the gospel, the expectations of what it means to really know and live for Christ? What happens in the middle of verse 25? It says Felix was alarmed. He's afraid. He's shocked. He doesn't know what to do with this information. He's alarmed. So what does he do? He procrastinates, right? He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The NIV says, when I find a convenient time. And we we could talk about this some more. Not right now. It's getting kind of hot. I'm feeling pretty convicted. I don't want to talk about it anymore. When I feel like it, I'll send for you again when I have a better opportunity. He's procrastinating. He's missing his opportunity, we should never, ever put off spiritual conviction. Don't procrastinate in the area of righteousness. Don't procrastinate in the area of self-control. Don't procrastinate in getting ready for Christ's return. Acts seventeen thirty: the times of ignorance of God have been overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he says, In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is what scripture says. we We gotta delineate on this today. We gotta deal with this today. As soon as God brings it up, through his word, own your heart is the time to deal with it. Otherwise, we're moving into our third heading, which is the procrastination the procrastination. This is what Felix does. Again, he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will come to you. So the governor's mind had been superficially enlightened, Acts 24, 22. He knew a little bit about the way. His emotions had been stirred, verse 25, he's alarmed, but his will, his will would not yield. And as far as we know, Felix never repented. He was never converted, and he never believed in Jesus. He tried to gain the world, but as far as we know, he lost his soul. He procrastinated himself into hell. He's not the only example in the Bible of this. Your next subpoint there, A, examples of procrastination in the Bible. There are many specifically putting off the gospel call until another time the Athenians did so that we're just been referencing your first one number one the Athenians there in Acts 17 Paul preaches the gospel about the unknown God and after he even called them to repent what did they do it says now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead Acts 17 32 some mocked and others said we will hear you again about this That's the phrase that I'm saying is procrastinating. They say, hey, we'll hear you again. We don't want to deal with it right now, but we'll hear you again about this. But you know what happened? Paul left Athens, never to return again. And as far as we know, these philosophers never heard another sermon from Paul. He gave it all in the Sermon on Mars Hill. They said, we'll hear you again. It's partly encouraging. Okay, they want to hear it again, but it's partly discouraging because they never heard it again. The Athenians procrastinated. There's number two, maybe more, known to us as the foolish virgins. There's the procrastination of the foolish virgins in the parable, Matthew 25, one through 12. Those who didn't have enough oil in their lamps, they had to go out and buy some. And while they were out buying more oil, the bridegroom came. And while they were out, he came, right? And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, but then the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. So they had procrastinated to really prepare for the coming of the bridegroom, and it cost them their life. It was too late for them, and it will be too late for you if you don't prepare for the return of Christ. There was also, number three, those who walked with Jesus but defaulted. There were many who walked with Jesus but defaulted as referenced in those cross references given there in your outline. In John chapter 6, basically, these were people who walked close with Jesus and they heard his teaching. And Jesus gave some really hard teaching about, you better be willing to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And many of the disciples said, this is a hard saying. Jesus is asking for radical obedience and discipleship and they're saying this is a hard saying who can listen to this and many of them when they heard it many of his disciples they turned back and they no longer walked with him which means they were never truly born again they went away they said we can't handle the radical things of what Jesus when he's doing miracles and giving out bread and doing nice things man we love it and when he looks at us and he bears down on our soul to say, This is what it means to be a true Christian, the text says that they turn back and they no longer walk with them. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And it was Simon Peter who answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So a true Christian's not turned away, but these other quote-unquote philosophers from Athens, these foolish virgins, these people who followed Christ but couldn't handle the tough teaching, they lost their souls because they weren't willing to repent and believe in the gospel in that moment. And what I'm saying is don't let the same thing happen to you. I think it's appropriate to ask, why did Felix procrastinate? Felix had ample instruction He had ample exposure. He had ample opportunity. He sent for him many times to come and talk with him. The end of the text says he was there about two years. Notice how it says, you know, when I get an opportunity, the last line of 25, I'll summon you. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often as he conversed with him. So why did he procrastinate? Well, Three possible reasons why Felix procrastinated. Number one, he procrastinated because of money. That's what, he, that's what the text says. He says that he sent for him, hoping he would get some money. He's looking for a bribe. You, you know what Felix wanted? He wanted Paul to pay him off which was somewhat common for prisoners to pay off the Roman soldiers or the Roman uh, governors in order to be set free. He wanted to take some money under the table to set Paul free. And so he kept Paul in custody without adequate evidence that Paul was guilty because he was hoping to make a buck. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Another reason why Felix procrastinated, verse 27, people often put off God because of power, because of power, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. History Reveals that Felix suppressed a riot in Caesarea using brutal tactics. The Jews there were so outraged that they were able to complain to the Roman emperor and have Felix removed from his duties. And in a dying effort to save face, he left Paul in prison hoping that this action might somehow appease the Jews and the Romans at the same time and maybe keep him in power. So he's making a decision not based on the law or the evidence, but he's making a decision that will help him somehow maintain his power. Speaking to the Israelites, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet said in Jeremiah twenty-two seventeen, 17, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. This is what Felix was doing. He was willing to practice dishonest gain, to shed innocent blood when he brutally put down a riot, and to practice oppression and violence. And so he, he wanted power. He wanted control. He wanted to stay in that position. Number three, another reason that I'm suggesting why Felix may have procrastinated is people often put off God because of relationships. Because of relationships. And here I'm talking about his wife, Drusilla. Even though she was a Jewish and connected to family that had greatly persecuted and harmed the way, it's possible. That maybe there was some influence, because it mentions her many times in the text, that somehow that there was influence from his wife for whatever reason. We know that Pilate's wife told him, don't do anything bad to Jesus because I had a bad dream about him. That was Pilate's wife. So Drusilla, we don't know if somehow there was conversations about what she thought about Paul being convicted of a crime when there was no evidence because Paul was a Jew. We don't know. But we do know that many people are influenced by your family by what people think and sometimes people procrastinate coming to Christ because they have a cultural relationship with a family that is of a different faith or of a different cult. And remember what Jesus said about choosing Christ over family. Remember what he said? In Luke 9:59 and following it says, to another he said, "Follow me." And he said, "Lord, first let me go bury my father." And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's just simply saying, don't put your family first. Don't put your heritage first. Christ comes first. And if you go back to the family and say, well, I don't want to offend them. They raised me this way. I'll wait until my mom and dad pass, and then I'll become a Christian. I mean, that, that is a, a really lame excuse, right? So we see here that Felix chose money. Verse 26, he chose power. Verse 27, somewhere in there, he may have chosen a relationship over Jesus. I hope that you won't make the same mistake. Dr. Clarence McCartney told a story about a meeting in hell. Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. It'll never work, said Satan. People can look around them and see that there is a God. I'll go and tell them there's no heaven, suggested a second demon, but Satan rejected that idea. Everybody knows there's life after death and they want to go to heaven. Let's tell them there's no hell, said a third demon. No, conscience tells them that their sins will be judged, said the devil. We need a better lie than that. Quietly, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved your problem, he said. I'll go to earth and tell everybody that there is no hurry. Many people have bought into that lie. The best time To trust Jesus Christ or to repent of any ongoing sin is not tomorrow, but it's today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Tomorrow belongs to the devil, but today belongs to God. And I believe with all my heart that there are people in our congregation that need to do business with God. For you, that might be coming to Christ for the first time. You've been putting off the salvation call of God in your life. You've been putting off the conviction of God, the beauty of the gospel, because you've liked money or food or sex or some other desire is filling you, and it will never satisfy. And I'm calling you today to come to Christ after we close with our last song We're gonna have a few people standing over here. We would love to share with you about how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's others in here that are Christians. You're born again. There's no doubt about that, but you're struggling with ongoing sin. And God, the lover of your soul, is bringing conviction through his word in your heart this very morning. As you've heard Paul's sermon on righteousness Self control in the judgment to come. And if that's you this morning, please come talk to somebody. I'm available. Our elder team's available. Your small group leader, our counselors will be over here at the end of this sermon. We ask that you would consider coming and doing business with God. Don't put it off any longer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of walking by faith. And yet, we know at times that our hearts can be heavy. As we consider parts of this message is kind of like a heavy message, as we consider the, the lack of self-control, that we sometimes struggle with ongoing sin, and we pray that you would give us your conviction. We pray that you would also extend your grace. We pray that you would show us the mercy of God through Christ, that if we repent and we uncover our sins, that you cover it by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would remind us that if we keep running from you and keep hiding that will only lead to our own detriment. So we pray for the lost this morning, that you would bring light into their souls through Christ. We pray for those who are born again this morning, then in areas of hidden fault and secret sin or just ongoing struggle that we just can't get the upper hand on, that you would remind us this morning of the beauty of the gospel, the truth of self-control that you offer us through Christ so that when that judgment day comes, there will be no shame and no more tears that we know that we stand on the righteousness of Christ and that we've been forgiven. And of course, we understand that the judgment seat for the believer is not a time of, of detriment, but a time of reward, a time to be encouraged, a time to be, um, to be reflecting on Christ's imputed righteousness on our account. Wherever we need to do business with you this morning, whether it's in the privacy of our hearts or having a conversation, would you move in our midst today? Would you allow us not to be sleepy and to stupor around in the apathy of our flesh this morning, but rather to get real with you and to to see you bring about true change in our hearts because it's possible through Christ and through the gospel. Thank you for these reminders this morning. We pray that you be glorified in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.